Hi, welcome to In Sync, the podcast that explores the history and impact of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm your host, Rachel Brodsky. And I'm your adopted host, Aviva Rubenstein. With there being a new Wes Anderson movie in the universe, Asteroid City, Aviva and I thought it would be a timely coincidence if we dedicated an episode to what is hands down my personal favorite Wes Anderson film. Cosign. Yes. 2001's The Royal Tenenbaums. Starring Danny Glover, Gene Hackman, Angelica Houston, Bill Murray, Gwyneth Paltrow, Ben Stiller, Luke Wilson, Owen Wilson, who also co-wrote the script with Wes Anderson, The Royal Tenenbaums is about three gifted siblings, Gwyneth Paltrow, Ben Stiller, and Luke Wilson, who experience great success as kids, followed by greater disappointment and failure in adulthood. The children's father, Royal Tenenbaum, Gene Hackman's character, leaves them in their adolescent years, but returns to them after they have grown up falsely claiming he has terminal stomach cancer, moving back in with his family as he attempts to mend his broken relationship with his estranged wife and kids. The Royal Tenenbaums also has a famously great soundtrack featuring the Ramones' Judy is a Punk, Paul Simon's Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard, Nico's These Days, which is, I think, my second favorite needle drop. Oh yeah, there's going to be some Nico talk in this episode. Amazing. Van Morrison's Everyone, John Lennon's Look at Me, and the pivotal needle drop that we are here to talk about, Elliot Smith's Needle in the Hay, which memorably soundtracks Richie, played by Luke Wilson's suicide attempt. The movie also features a score by Devo's own Mark Mothersbaugh. Why was this such an effective musical moment in the Royal Tenenbaums? And what does it say about the overall way that Wes Anderson likes to use music in his films? And what did Elliot Smith think about the song being used in this way? Spoiler, he was not a fan. All this and more on the latest episode of InSync. Let's shag ass. Hell yeah. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm Kyle. Can We Geek About is a new podcast from Gotham West. Each week, JJ and I will delve into the geekier side of pop culture from our favorites in science fiction and fantasy to new releases and even maybe rag on some absolute flops. We promise that even if you don't like what we have to say, you'll like how we say it. But anyway, can we geek about? Did you really need me here for this? I just needed a ride. (sighs) Can we geek about? So give us a listen, subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. So, 
Rachel. Aviv. It's time to settle something once and for all. Okay. You say Tenenbaums. I say You say Tenenbaums. Let's Ooh, call I'll tell you thing. why. <laughs> I'll tell you why. I think it's because my family has Tenenbaums in it. Oh. We have a Tenenbaum branch of the family. And that's how I always heard my family say it. I don't know any more of our Tenenbaums because I I think the name got just like married out. Sure. Yeah. But that's, I think, just my own personal, like I heard like my parents and other people in the family. So like, listeners, phrase it that way. we are going to just pronounce them differently. We are two different people with different histories. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. It is, however, Tenenbaums. 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 Like Tenenbaums, like, I'm going to Tenenbaum your house later. <laughs> we live in the same building. I, I know. That's why it's not Don't a good Tenenbaum idea. our houses. <laughs> okay. So, Aviv. Yes. Tell me why this is your favorite Wes Anderson. I'm glad you asked. We all know that from the beginning, Wes Anderson's style has been pastel Barbie dream house art and wealthy malaise. But what this movie presupposes is, what if it wasn't? In this, Wes Anderson's best film, Do Not At Me, we really get to see the beginning of the Wes Anderson cinematic universe. His, his first two movies, Bottle Rocket and Rushmore, are based in reality. And we'll talk about the making of those movies a little later on. But Tenenbaums is... A deadpan yet absurd send-up of an Upper East Side New York family? There were three extraordinary children in the Tenenbaum family. I said sell it, yeah. Chaz Tenenbaum was a financial expert and started buying real estate in his early teens. Margot Tenenbaum was an acclaimed playwright and won a Pulitzer Prize in the ninth grade. Richie Tenenbaum was a champion tennis player ranked second in the world by age 17. They were brilliant. They were famous. They were unlucky enough to be the children of a man named Royal Tenenbaum. Are you getting divorced? It doesn't look good. Was that our fault? Obviously, we made certain sacrifices as a result of having children, but uh, no, Lord, no. Thank you, Pagoda. Well, I'm on my way. Now, for the first time in 22 years... I hear you're dying. Oh, how long are you going to last? A month, a year? I've got six weeks to set things right. <laughs> They are all living together under the same roof, in harmony. I love you more than anything. Ho, 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 Real quick, let's do a quick family tree because we're gonna, there's a lot of characters. This is a true ensemble, and so we're going to name a lot of characters. Royal Tenenbaum is played by Gene Hackman, and Ethelene Tenenbaum, Angelica Houston, are the parents to three kids, Richie, Luke Wilson, Chaz, Ben Stiller's character, and their adopted daughter, Margot Tenenbaum, Gwyneth Paltrow, in her best role by a mile. 1,000% agree with that. Like, so my fiance, soon-to-be wife, Leanne, never really got Gwyneth Paltrow or, like, why anyone would hire her to do anything. And she's then, pretty. Because she's she, pretty. Because she's pretty. But there are many pretty people. And, she's pretty and a Nepo baby. Well, Yes. Um, a nepo baby for ben stiller's mother-in-law in in, uh, meet the parents big meet the parents connection Uh, yep yep. but she had never seen the royal tenenbaums and then we watched it and she was like oh i get it now." yeah i i think without having thought about it much before royal tenenbaums is 
Gwyneth Paltrow's like reason. Raison d'etre. In addition to, and this is a hot take. High expectations. <laughs> sliding doors. <laughs> oh shit! Sliding doors. Okay. Fucking love. I love sliding doors. We're, get, we're getting. We're getting off on a tangent already. So Royal insists on introducing Margot as his adopted daughter, basically everywhere they go. Each of the Tenenbaum children is a genius in their own way. Margot is a writer, a feat, bored, married to a famed psychologist who is her father's age, and she's missing a finger. Richie is a tennis pro who has absconded to a boat because he's secretly in love with Margot. And Chaz is and always was a business whiz, which earned his father's jealousy. And father of two children of his own, Chaz is obsessed with his kids' safety after the tragic death of their mother, which happens off screen. Ethelene and Royal have been separated for years because, and I can't stress this enough, Royal is a fuck. He has been living in a hotel for the last decade or so, and Ethelene has moved on to Henry Sherman, played by Danny Glover, who sets the story in motion by asking Ethelene to marry him. This, by the way, is what we would call a MacGuffin. Quick thing that I realized when we were researching the bear, mm. our last episode, apparently Eben Moss Backrack was in the Royal Tenenbaums. See, now I'm pronouncing it your way. Hell yeah. As I, win. I think he played a bellboy in that hotel that oh, Royal yeah. is staying with at. Pagoda. With Pagoda. A little bit more on Pagoda. We'll talk about Pagoda. So Pagoda is the Tenenbaum's butler, and he's the one that slips the information to Royal that Ethelene is potentially going to be engaged to Henry Sherman. And Pagoda is played by Kumar Palana, who was just like a guy who worked at a coffee shop in Dallas that Wes Anderson just like liked and tries to put in it each one of his movies he like steals the movie i love pagoda um <laughs> yeah so in an effort to get ethylene back or just to fuck up her engagement to henry royal fakes stomach cancer and weasels his way back into the house and to his children's lives are you following all that great one more character worth mentioning is eli cash played by co-writer owen wilson in his best role by a mile and Eli is Richie's best friend and the unofficial fourth Tenenbaum child who's also in love with Margot and, like Margot, fancies himself a writer. Okay, this movie's fucking great. The answer is, why is this the best Wes Anderson movie? Because it's fucking great. <laughs> Can we talk about how great this movie is? Any day of the week. <laughs> I saw this movie in theaters 22 years ago, almost 22 years ago, and I still quote this movie constantly. As you should. It also begins Wes Anderson's trend of creating worlds that are completely enclosed. Never forget that what we're actually doing is reading a storybook written by Margot Tenenbaum, narrated impeccably, by the way, by Alec Baldwin. So you mentioned that Owen Wilson plays a writer. Hell yeah. As, as well. And so, and Margot, while she, like, she published all these plays and was a prolific writer as a child as a child yeah as someone who writes for a living now i can really appreciate the humor in how um eli is really a kind of a garbage writer let's let's just say it and margo is yeah. very talented and with that talent comes a big burden and she can't mm -hmm. write eli is a hack yep and is getting a ton of good press and there is a sense of professional and personal jealousy. Yep. That is that is 
warranted, or at least the movie yeah. sees as warranted. One gets the sense that Eli only wants to be with Margot and hang out with the family. Margot is like his ticket into the family, and Margot is like it's a it's an impure love yeah. because he just wants to feel her, the shine of her actual talent, even if she's not utilizing it. Yeah. He sends his newspaper clippings to Ethelene. Mm-hmm. And Richie's love, although they are adopted siblings, is pure because he doesn't he doesn't want anything at the end of the day, just, I, but just to be next to her. I agree. I agree with that assessment. Every Wes Anderson movie has taken the idea of an enclosed reality of a storybook or a story that you're being told and given the world this unique identity and distilled it further and further and further from the life aquatic to my second favorite Wes Anderson movie, the the Darjeeling limited. And now Mm -hmm. to asteroid city, which makes a real meal out of being an enclosed universe. The whole, the whole premise of the movie is that it takes place all in this like fictional town of asteroid city, much like Rushmore before it, the initial inspiration for this film came from Anderson's own life, specifically the divorce of his own parents just replaced New York City for Houston. So I'm going to put on my best Alec Baldwin narrator voice. Mm-hmm. Wesley Wales Anderson was born. No, I can't do it. Wesley <laughs> Wales Anderson. Bad. Wesley Wales Anderson was born in 1969 to Ann Anderson, nay Burroughs. And <laughs> I, can't, I, I can't sustain it. So Wes Anderson was born in 1969 to Ann Anderson, who was a realtor and archaeologist. And Melver... I, Melver. I checked this. I Melver. checked this. Melver. Melver Leonard Anderson, who worked in advertising and PR. I, I just want to take a second to focus on Anderson's mother, who was a realtor and archaeologist, which sounds like a character from a Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> and so it does. I think that his relationship with his parents as well as like you know he comes from a little bit of money and and we can talk a little bit about the the privilege that he has in creating his own unique worlds but i think that he comes by this point of view of the world kind of honestly like this is the way he sees it it's just normal for your mother to be a realtor and archaeologist and Anderson based the Angelica Houston character off of his own mother and even loaned Angelica Houston a pair of his mother's old glasses during filming to put her more in character. I have a question as a filmmaker. Does every filmmaker ultimately just want to make a movie about their life? Yes. Okay. But I think that that might be a little bit of a cart before the horse. At least the way that I approach filmmaking is... I try to understand every character honestly. And that is like a process or sometimes I'm like working through stuff and the characters are the different points of view that are currently fighting with each other about the thing that I'm working through. So I'm currently finishing a movie right now and every character is me, is a version of me. And they're all just fighting with each other to make a decision about, you know, whatever is, is the, whatever the point of view of the movie is. Yeah. So the the answer yeah. is yes, but I would hesitate to say from a completely narcissistic way. I think it's from like a philosophical, psychological study kind of way. That does answer my question. Wes is the second of three boys. 
His parents divorced when he was eight. His older brother, Mel Jr., is a physician, and his younger brother, Eric, is a writer and artist whose paintings and designs have appeared in several of his movies, including the Royal Tenenbaums. So mm-hmm. he's the Margot. He's the he's the Richie, I guess, in this family. He's yeah, the middle one. That- yeah, I think. I mean, like you were just saying multiple characters multiple points of view within one creator yeah and a lot of his movies deal with absent parents either emotionally or physically like a lot of his movies rushmore royal tenenbaums life aquatic darjeeling basically all of them darjeeling limited by the way feels like an unofficial sequel to the royal tenenbaums where angelica houston reprises her role as the mother of three blase gen xers looking for answers (laughs) (laughs) Anderson graduated from St. John's School in Houston in 1987, and that served as the inspiration for his second film and Jason Schwartzman's star-making turn in Rushmore. But his first film owes a lot to unsung Hollywood matron and super producer Polly Platt, who read a script written by Anderson and Owen Wilson for a film called Bottle Rocket. The incredible You Must Remember This podcast does a whole season on Polly Platt and her Midas touch. Basically, every great filmmaker for a period of 20 years had a run-in with Polly Platt where she completely changed their lives and fixed their filmmaking. In this case, Polly Platt took a look at the script, which was a total mess by her account, and also the 10-minute short film that Anderson and Owen and Luke Wilson self-produced and convinced James L. Brooks, like producer of The Simpsons, yeah, to finance the trio's move to Los Angeles, put them up in the Burbank apartments for months so they could rewrite the script and finally make Bottle Rocket. Mm. But when the movie came out, no one got it. No yeah. one liked it. Have you yeah. seen Bottle Rocket? I have. I saw it, I think, in high school or college. I want to pr- probably college. And I, I didn't not like it. Sure. It's not one that I would rush to put on again. I would agree with that. It is very much someone, as an old writing professor of mine used to say, uh, letting the water run a little bit before it turns clear. It's definitely like a little bit of a mess. And he didn't have the cachet to do something that was like completely his style. So it it feels like this kind of middle ground. If you haven't, if the listeners haven't seen it, it's basically like Pulp Fiction for dweebs, which (laughs) is weird and great. And and I do really like it. It's definitely a movie where you're like, yes, like I can see the potential. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But that's it. In my opinion, it's just, it's just potential. If you just want to see like flashes of, Wes Anderson before Wes Anderson became Wes Anderson, then right. go watch Bottle Rocket. But I, I kind of feel the same way about Pulp Fiction. Uh, that's funny. I was going to say it, but then I tried to hold it back. No, no. I think I think Pulp Fiction is a masterpiece, but it's like a messy masterpiece. You know how you were talking about in our Dirty Dancing episode about mm. how like you spent so long not seeing Dirty Dancing that you just had this whole like in your mind imaginative story about what it was about oh, yeah right that is kind of my story with pulp fiction but that's for another podcast for sure and we we will get to a quentin tarantino episode at some yeah. point it's just one of, it's the it's a yeah. white whale you know it's because i didn't see it in high school and then you get to college and then literally everybody well, has a shut the fuck up about yeah, it yeah or they or everybody has a poster of pulp fiction in their dorm rooms or like dresses up like john travolta and uma thurman for halloween and it's just like I don't need to see this because too many people have already seen it. What 
differences in my seeing it possibly i don't know like i just check and check i have i have old halloween pictures of me dressed up like john travolta and i had a pulp fiction poster in my Uh, bedroom in high school bet you did i certainly did did. This this is from Slash. Lean in, lean into the cliche. I know, man, and a Fight Club poster. I was really, Ah! I was a mess. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. This is from Slash Film. After the poor response that Bottle Rocket got, Anderson did not have high hopes for his future as a director. He told this to Film Four. Looking back, I don't even know how he managed to get Rushmore made or why. We'd spent so many years making Bottle Rocket. Well, virtually no one saw it. However, Bottle Rocket did impress a few people, though most notably a producer at Touchstone Pictures, which is Disney's live-action arm. Quote, it sort of built up this little cult following eventually, but it had a few fans that were in the movie business, like Ross, who sort of set us up at Disney. And Wes Anderson explained this to Charlie Rose, who uh, will make an appearance a little later in the episode somehow. Uh, The director's sophomore film was an even riskier endeavor. Rushmore was more expensive by about double and maybe even a bit stranger. And yet it seemed to just happen. So I think it was just lucky. That was his quote to film for. And this is Slash Film. It wasn't luck at all. His first film taught him a lesson. Quote, once we showed Bottle Rocket publicly and I saw that people could reject this movie completely, that changed my perspective permanently about what it's like to bring a movie to an audience and what you can expect. Even still, Wes Anderson wouldn't allow the hostile reception of Bottle Rocket to cloud his creative judgment. Quote, it didn't make me change how I went about doing Rushmore. But once Bottle Rocket was finished and suddenly someone said, we'll do another one, then that was what I was really focused on. And Rushmore was a success featuring an unforgettable debut performance by Jason Schwartzman and a supporting role played by Bill Murray. The two actors would go on to star in nearly every one of Wes Anderson's subsequent film. He is notably not in Royal Tenenbaums for some reason, but Rushmore Jason Schwartzman. Yeah, Jason Jason Schwartzman isn't, yeah. Rushmore made $20 million on a $10 million budget, which by today's standards is a massive failure. But culturally and critically, Wes Anderson was someone to pay attention to, which leads us to Tenenbaums. With a $21 million budget and a ton of clout in Hollywood, Wes Anderson got an A-list cast and was able to hone his voice as a filmmaker even further. So Gene Hackman was... Anderson's first choice for Royal. There was a rumor at the time that part was written for Bill Murray, but that he couldn't do it due to scheduling issues, which is not true. Anderson said, quote, it was written for Gene against his wishes. (laughs) And Ethelene Tenenbaum was written with Angelica Houston in mind as well. Gene Hackman was hesitant about accepting his role, specifically because he said this in interviews, because of how he treated his own family in the past. Which is like a really fucked up thing to admit to. But I guess the story is that he like consulted with his family about whether he should take the role or whether they would be offended. And they said, you should take it. I don't know. That's the life imitates uh, art. I'm I'm smelling some bullshit here. I have a quick question. Yes. Was Bill Murray edited out of the new Wes Anderson? Asteroid City? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I haven't seen it. Well, I thought I read somewhere that he was edited out, like he was in the movie and then edited out because he's oh. been having a not great PR year. 
He has been having a not great PR year, and there are classic tales of ensemble movies like Robert Altman's Nashville and like some of Terrence Malick's films that like shoot a lot of stuff and then like big performances from like very famous people will just be like completely cut out. Okay. So oh, I have an answer to my own be. question. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, The Guardian reported in June 2023 that Wes Anderson says Bill Murray misconduct allegations won't affect their working relationship. He added that it was COVID, not misconduct allegations that stopped the actor from appearing in Asteroid City. So there you go. And because of some of the events that happened on the set of Royal Tenenbaums, it is understandable that Anderson feels like he might owe Bill Murray a favor. So Hackman signs on, right? And once he's there, other high profile actors were eager to appear with him. Danny Glover, Luke and Owen Wilson all turned down parts in Ocean's Eleven to appear in this film. Makes sense for Luke and Owen Wilson because Owen co-wrote the movie. Danny Glover didn't need that shit. However, working with Gene wasn't easy. He signed on to the movie under the promise, the agreed promise from Wes Anderson that it would be a fun and relaxing experience. But that did not happen. And it led to... Hackman basically becoming a bully on set and verbally abusing Wes Anderson over trivial matters. Other actors, including Angelica Houston and Gwyneth Paltrow, avoided him. And Bill Murray saw this all happen and stepped in, called Hackman out on his verbal abuse of Wes Anderson, who was still very young at the time, and chose to come to work on his days off to like basically protect Wes, which never happens. Mm. Actors never come in on their day off because they're not getting paid. That's interesting because like I never really thought about this from that perspective where mm-hmm. you have this really young, relatively speaking, director and like an old hat actor who's like been there and done that and seen everything and maybe is also just an asshole underneath it. <laughs> and And he's like, technically, this young person's your boss, but But how's that going to play out? Fucking French connection, yeah. Yeah. So that is how that happens so often. That happens so incredibly often that it has happened to me, and a couple times. But there are some notorious actors and actresses who will not say certain lines, will kind of just put their foot down as a dominance, as to assert their dominance. It it can get a little dicey. And we can start a whole splinter podcast about, you know, spilling tea on actors who are monsters. And I can violate some NDAs. Ooh. Um, Ooh. So tune in for our bonus episodes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But also, Bill Murray has his own reputation for being like a prima donna on set. So... Did Bill Murray do this? At, this this sounds like a, a, oh man, Bill Murray stepped in to protect his young friend. This may have been like two quote unquote alphas like mm-hmm. jockeying for supremacy on the set. Definitely. There's like a lot of stuff going on with this, with this quote. But Anderson may or may not feel like he owes a tithe to Bill Murray for the rest of his career because it, it is entirely possible that bill murray saved this movie yeah that makes sense though that hackman and murray are probably more alike than they are unalike yeah. except that one happened to be on the 
quote, right side. And Hackman also was like a actor's actor. He was in these like highbrow, high profile 70s films. And Bill Murray's the guy from fucking Ghostbusters. And so I think that there is something that plays into it, too, where it's like, oh, you can't talk to me because you're just a comedy guy, you piece of shit. You know, if you can imagine actors sometimes have huge egos and no. the bigger the bigger the ego, the more the easier it is to step on someone's toes and offend them in this like really horrible narcissistic way. The film, however, is an insane amalgamation of inspirations and references from J.D. Salinger's Franny and Zoe, which gives the movie its family of geniuses, to Orson Welles's The Magnificent Ambersons, which, among other things, gives the movie its name, and characters based on Oliver Sacks, Cormac McCarthy, former U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan, and in a throwaway moment, Charlie Rose whose avatar is engaging in behavior in this film that he would be accused of more than 15 years later. Dang. (laughs) So it's bizarre that Anderson told that story on the Charlie Rose show. The snake snake eats its tail. Right? (laughs) But the storyline that we're going to focus on most closely is inspired by Jean-Pierre Melville's Les Enfants Terribles, By the way, I know that many of our listeners are not fans of my French pronunciation. No one is more disappointed in me than my mother. You know this for a fact? Yeah, because my mother texted me saying, your French pronunciation is horrible. Well, did you take French? I mean, I why? did. I took oh. four years of French in high school. Okay. It is. It's it's not great. Okay. Well, then I, I guess she has some reason to. I was oh, going to yeah. say it would be a shame if you're like Hebrew. Also bad. <laughs> horrible. So Les Enfants Terribles is where Anderson gets the inspiration for Richie and Margot's forbidden romance. After partnering with Margot's husband, Raleigh St. Clair, Bill Murray's character, Raleigh and Richie hire a private detective to look into Margot's whereabouts because Raleigh thinks she's cheating on him. And Richie and Raleigh find out that Margot is sleeping with that hack writer, Eli Cash. <laughs> This leads Richie to confront his feelings about Margot, stare at himself in the mirror, cut his hair and beard, and attempt to take his own life, all while Elliot Smith's Needle in the Hay oozes from the soundtrack. There are a ton of great musical moments in this movie that, that you've already mentioned. We could do three additional episodes on just the music mm. that Richie and Margot share with each other. Nico's cover of Jackson Brown's These Days is as indelible of an image as any movie of the 21st century. That was the song and the scene that got me into Nico. Yeah. As I think many music fans could also attest. There's one image that sums up this era of filmmaking. I think it's that. But there's also the Rolling Stones' Ruby Tuesday when they're camping in the attic. Hey Jude when they set Richie's Hawk Mordecai free. Or what about me and Julio down by the schoolyard and the incredible montage where Royal gets to be a grandfather to Chaz's sons, Ari and Uzi? Why, Rachel, are we talking about Elliot Smith and Needle in the Hay? Well, it's a really interesting story. I mean, the combinations of song to scene that we find, I think, generally tend to be like they elicit positive feelings from both the filmmaker and the artist. That's not the case here. No. 
Well, first, before I go into it, let's stop here and listen to a little bit of Needle in the Hay before we get to it. Your hand on his arm, he stacked charm around your neck. Strung out and thin, calling some friend, trying to cash some check. He's acting dumb, that's what you come to expect. Needle in the hay, needle in the hay, needle in the hay, needle in the hay. Now, content warning. Part two. Part two. This is not for anyone currently dealing with issues around substance abuse, addiction, depression, or suicidal ideation to listen to. Um, if, if this is something that anybody is dealing with, we strongly suggest skipping the next part. That being said, needle in the hay on its face, it is incredibly raw, it's incredibly poignant, and all you hear mostly is just spare acoustic guitar and Elliot Smith's voice, which was at some points multi-tracked, which he was a fan of doing. He does that a lot with a lot of his songs. And for those who aren't familiar with Elliot Smith and his work, Elliot Smith died in 2003. So this is the 20th year of his death since his death. And he was a very complicated figure, although on the face, a lot of his songs, most of his songs, you could superficially argue, deal with substance abuse issues, addiction, depression, and suicidal ideation. These are all things that the artist himself dealt with. Elliot was not a fan of just like being slotted in to like just being labeled in that way. After his 1997 breakout moment with uh, Miss Misery, which soundtracked Goodwill Hunting and kind of put Elliot Smith in the, the limelight for the first time in his career, he also performed Miss Misery at the Oscars because it was nominated for uh, Best Original Song that year. And after that happened, I, th- I, I think it was a either a spin article, like, like some a journalist basically called him Mr. Misery. As a result, and he, that he just didn't like that. Yeah, he was he was a complicated person who wrote incredibly poignant songs about deeply, like the saddest, most difficult, complex feelings a person can feel. And yet, he is a really a pop singer and like a, a pop creator at heart. And he hated being. Uh, just slotted into this, oh, he's the sad, depressed, wants to kill himself singer. It's interesting because he comes at like a perfect moment between grunge and emo, mm. right? Where he's doing this interesting Butch Vig Nirvana-esque doubling his vocals. Mm. He is, he's kind of seething. It's It's almost as though a Nirvana song never got to kick in, right? For Needle in the Hay. And much like Nirvana, they were essentially like a pop band, like Mm -hmm. like all of their production and their songwriting structure Mm -hmm. is pop music. They were just tapping into a different set of colors, a different set of emotions than 
your typical your flock of seagulls or something um i don't know why that was my pop band reference but well it it makes sense and both nirvana and elliot smith or rather kirk cobain and elliot smith how they did they do come from punk backgrounds yeah with the former being based out of seattle and kind of kick-starting in mainstream culture the whole grunge movement which is like a trickle down from punk elliot smith was born in Nebraska, raised in Texas, and then lived much of his life in Portland. So he, which are three of the like biggest singer songwriter emo troubled mm. singer songwriter hotspots. Yes. So Smith has this Portland background. He played in a punk band called Heat Miser for several years prior to performing solo. I have not written about this, but I'm sure many have. There's a lot of overlap. Between performer like Elliot Smith and Kurt Cobain, they were famous in different circles and maybe for different reasons, but they are, I think, two singer-songwriters that share a lot in common in terms of their minds and bodies. And their, you know, their deaths are also, they they both kind of died by suicide and, and then have been lionized or or deified yeah deified definitely decades since their passing which is something that both of them i didn't meet either of them but it seems like both of them would probably be deeply uncomfortable yes i think that there is more documented information about kurt cobain and nirvana and less documented information about elliot smith even even in death, he he remains mysterious, and there is only so much concrete information out there about him, not so much in terms of his history, but more in terms of what he himself thought of his life and his music. And I'll go into this a little bit more. But first, talking about Needle in the Hay as a piece of art, it was released as the first and only single on Smith's second studio album, his self-titled. It was released on January 1st, 1995, by Kill Rock Stars, his label at the time. There are various versions of Needle in the Hay that do include uh, drums and bass, plus Smith singing an octave higher, but the original version is uh, what made it into Royal Tenenbaums. And it is worth noting that as I mentioned earlier, Smith had achieved some mainstream recognition by this point, with Miss Misery appearing on the soundtrack for Goodwill Hunting. Elliot Smith performing at the Oscars sounds yep. like a dog juggling. It's like, you're like, can this happen? It feels like they exist in two entirely different universes. And that might be because of his deification since his passing, but like, mm-hmm. He was a musician. He was in the entertainment industry. His job was to entertain people. He did his best to do that. He, you know, performed in front of George Clooney once. Like, like, yeah. get over it. Get over it, Aviv. <laughs> I think <laughs> there's that fundamental tension in any art industry where something or someone has such a talent and the people who would make money off of it recognize that talent they want to put that person on tour and sell it then there are people i think every artist deals with fame differently but uh i think elliot smith is just someone 
who never wanted to be even remotely as famous. And, and arguably, he wasn't super, super, super famous even when he was famous. He wasn't like Kurt Cobain, Nirvana right. famous, but he was. I mean, you know, the, the Oscars, network television. Yeah, this is also back when the Oscars had like, you know, 90 million people watching. So going back to William Todd Schultz's book on Smith that noted how Smith was not happy with his song being used in this way to soundtrack a suicide attempt. Smith did deal with addiction and suicidal ideation before his passing in 2003, but interviews with him on the record find Smith both openly admitting to thinking about wanting to unalive himself but then abruptly avoiding or changing the subject. So this would be something that he, I guess, became known for just saying like, okay, I'm moving to a different city. Uh, probably won't see you because I'm probably going to kill myself. And then when he'd be interviewed or later on, just in another month or week, he would like not want to talk about it and seem perfectly fine. However you define fine. Right. This was Matt. He was yeah. masking or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about its use in the scene. So there's a huge TikTok trend of people doing the Wes Anderson aesthetic to light, fun harpsichord music and putting things in the center of the frame. This to me is the first Wes Anderson aesthetic moment that is used for evil. Right. It's not evil, but is, is, is shows the darkness. And so you have Richie staring into the mirror, taking off his sunglasses, cutting his beard, cutting his hair, whispering to himself, I'm going to kill myself. And then I would say it's an unbroken shot. There is like kind of some jump cuts to, cause you don't want, watch him cut his, his entire head. And then it cuts to like this POV shot of, of Richie's arms and you see the the blood trickling down mm -hmm. and then it cuts to so we're still in Richie's POV of him being rushed to the hospital and one of the like real throwaway characters Raleigh St. Clair's test subject Dudley is like standing over him wailing so there is still like a bit of humor in this moment mm -hmm. but all of the sound effects cut out. All of the ambience cuts out. There's no dialogue. All you do is you hear this song, which I think to Anderson, at least, completely distilled the emotion that Richie was going through. Mm -hmm. So when Elliot Smith is like, I don't like what the, that people associate this song with wanting to kill yourself. It feels like, once again, I'm extrapolating, but it feels like Elliot Smith is saying like, oh, Wes got a little too close. Mm, true. Yes. Again, I think Smith was the type of artist who he'd like to be a contrarian sure. at, at times, even yeah. in e even if you were to say something as obvious as the sky is blue. Well, is it? It's actually clear. <laughs> it's from what I've read. It sounds like Smith liked to be the, the sort of. Well, is it a kind of person? And, and that definitely taps into his own work. And I should say, like, around this time, 2000, 2001, Smith was in a very bad way. Right. Lore has it, like, or at least documented history has it, that he was doing better in terms of uh, all of 
the issues that he was dealing with in his life around 2003, even like right before he he died. And a lot of his friends were very optimistic about his getting over his addiction, yeah, recovery, and yeah. recovery. Uh, and then he ultimately did not actually recover. It's also worth noting that this the lyrics of the song are not about self-harm at all. Well, let's pull them up. I have them. Oh, you have them. Okay. There, it's not. It's there aren't that many lyrics. It says your hand on his arm, the haystacks charm around your neck, strung out and thin, calling some friend to cash some check. So that sounds like a drug reference. Mm. He's acting dumb. That's what you've come to expect. He's wearing your clothes, head down to his toes. Reaction to you. You say you know what he did, but you idiot kid, you don't have a clue. Sometimes they just get caught in the eye you're pulling him through needle in the hay yeah so it's not really like a direct one-to-one richie tenenbaum saying i'm gonna kill myself today and then the song being like and then richie killed himself yeah (laughs) it sounds more it's more of a vibe the vibe exactly it's it's less so about the lyrics it's more just the, the the emotional delivery and the the incredibly spare song structure that might lend itself to a suicide attempt scene. And I think that you touched on the exact thing that makes the music in Wes Anderson films so particularly poignant and so unique to his style, which is he is incredible at just distilling the vibe of a moment and, you know, this, uh, I'm saying Wes Anderson as the Wes Anderson Industrial Complex, because he doesn't do this all on his own. He has music supervisors and everything like that. But he, they are incredible at distilling this vibe and finding the perfect kind of esoteric or or non-traditional song to go with it. Yeah. Before we move on, I wanted to read a quote from producer Andrew Morgan, who had been recording with Elliot in his studio when he realized the song had been used for this scene. Morgan says, Elliot had actually done a recording of Hey Jude just a few years back for none other than the Royal Tenenbaums. His experience had been embittering. They paid the absolute minimum they could get away with and didn't even use the recording after I'd gone through a lot of trouble to put the session together, especially for the na-na-na chorus at the end, Elliot said. And he was especially mortified about the use of Needle in the Hay from his self-titled album during the scene in which Richie Tenenbaum attempts to commit suicide. That's the last thing I'd ever want that song to be associated with, he being Elliot, lamented. It's interesting because I think Smith was never saying that Anderson got it wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just like, oh no, this is making it too attractive to people, which I think is like another reason why we put our content warning at the beginning of the thing. It's like books about eating disorder recovery sometimes serve as manuals to people who are struggling with eating disorders. If you see a hero of yours in a film that is doing this act that should not be echoed by the audience to an incredible song that just so happens to be from a person who also has suicidal ideation, like, is it saying you hey kid you should be like this too i don't think so but then again who am i i understand why you would say that though and without getting into like you know the argument in the 90s like 
right. Marilyn Manson's music. I mean, Marilyn Manson's terrible for other reasons, but Marilyn oh, yeah. Manson's music like causes kids to you know, pick up guns and blah, blah, blah. It was a real sleight of hand yeah. on Marilyn Manson's part to get us to not realize all the <laughs> Misdirection ways he was a monster. The last thing I'll say is that Smith, as journalists, fans, etc., kind of slotted his early music into quote, a reputation for being a really dark, depressed person, end quote. He, it made him feel really self-conscious. So he did move purposely. He made like this intentional move towards uh, more diverse moods in his music. And you can really hear that, I think, even in like posthumous releases, like from a basement on the hill. Even Waltz Number 2, which is my favorite of his songs. Mine not. too. Really? Oh. Yeah, I actually have a really cute story to tell you. I have you. a really cute story. What? Okay. Waltz number two is how, well, it's not how we met, but that was on his Tinder profile when we swiped each other. And you and Taylor? Yeah, me and Taylor. And I, at the time, was like, that's my favorite, favorite, favorite Elliot Smith song. And without lending too much like importance to it because like been down that road like you sure. love that song i love that song oh turns out we're nothing alike turns out we are extremely toxic for yeah time. exactly so five years after elliot smith's passing there was a tribute show at boston university which is where i went to school mm-hmm. and i played waltz number two at the tribute show that's so me cool. and my roommate ryan yeah i love that, that I yeah mean, yeah that is a a perfect song and xo is the name of the album yeah i couldn't i was like racking my brain uh because he says it in the song xo mom it's okay mm. it's all right nothing's wrong but even that is like not as depressed as needle in the hay no needle in the hay is pretty much f- from where i'm sitting i i think it's the most depressed the, the nadir of yeah, yeah. nadir of depression at least as far as Elliot Smith tells it. I found uh, an unearthed interview with Elliot Smith from 1999. So this is pre-Royal Tenenbaums. Pre-Royal Bounds, but post-Needle in the Hay. Right. So just, just to place it in the timeline. Yes. And in this interview, he talks about how he jumped off of a cliff to try to attempt suicide. Oh, this is this geez. is just this is just illustrative of the way that the, the casual nature and in which Smith would talk about suicide, but then kind of walk it back and mask, as you said. I don't feel any sadder than anybody else I know, Smith says. I'm happy some of the time, and some of the time I'm not. One of the times when he was not came in 1997, when the singer tried to kill himself. He won't say why this happened, though a piece in the Los Angeles Times suggested had to do with a breakup from his girlfriend. I don't like when people talk about all the bad things that have happened to them as if that makes them unique because I don't think I've had a harder time than other people. But um, yeah, I jumped off a cliff. It didn't work. It was in North Carolina or somewhere. It wasn't like I made up my mind to throw myself off a cliff. I got freaked out and started running. It was totally dark and I ran off the edge of the cliff. I saw it coming up and it wasn't like I'm going to throw myself off this cliff and die. It was just grounds coming up. Who cares? Whatever. I landed on a little tree, punctured my, you know, body. It just made a really ugly wound. Around this time, some of Smith's friends were so worried about Smith's drinking and talk of, of obliteration that they arranged substance abuse intervention. They surprised him with a counselor in a room in Chicago and pressured him to check into an Arizona detox facility. A few days later, Smith walked out, afraid he was about to be trapped. Kill rock stars Slim Moon 
who helped plan the intervention and also recorded Nirvana early on, sees similarities between Kurt Cobain and Smith. Kurt was the most talented songwriter I've ever met, but he was the same way as Elliot. He appeared really fragile in a lot of ways, was really stubborn, and he internalized everything. He would go on and on in his songs about how nothing was going to relieve his pain, but at the same time, he was searching hard for something to relieve it. This is, I mean, I think that this is incredible, and we kind of look at or question like why a lot of these artists have substance abuse problems, why a lot of these artists have suicidal ideation, and is there a connection between that and good songwriting or good art? And I think that there kind of is, which is that there is no filter for their feelings, right? They feel their feelings so hard that they have to express them sometimes in these really positive ways like creating art, and when that doesn't always work the, the the negative ways also kind of show up which is the drug addiction the drug abuse and the, and the the kind of suicidal tendencies yeah i think that it's that they they're feeling their feelings so intensely but they are also feeling the the feelings of other people and things 100%. even i read an anecdote where one of Elliot Smith's friends or family members would talk about how he couldn't even sit through a movie where there might be like a child or an animal being hurt, even though it's, it's fictional. And and yet his song, one of his greatest songs, is used in this really effective way, which is like p- potentially making him confront all those feelings of everyone in the theater and of Richie on screen. I think that's an amazing point. It might it might have been that it was just it's all too much to to see something like that applied in this way. And the song is over like this moment in the film is very overwhelming. I've seen this movie like a dozen times. I rewatched it a few months ago and it's still like an extremely powerful moment. No, it's it's almost a little mind-boggling to think about because if Needle in the Hay is a work of art that is trying to experience catharsis out of these overwhelming feelings and then you apply it to a scene like this which is so visceral and remains so more than 20 years later yeah. like it, it's actually a really hard scene for me to watch regardless of age like you just it's just one of those scenes that despite like a speck of humor in there with Dudley you just never get accustomed to it it hits yeah. the same way every time and to so to see it applied in this way I I could absolutely see that just being too much and dudley is like i I mentioned dudley specifically because of this like the hannah gatsby thing which is not unique to hannah gatsby but the thing of like it's it's about creating this tension and then humor releases it and so dudley is like this kind of escape valve in this Mm -hmm. moment where it's Mm -hmm. like if you are overwhelmed just look to dudley and you can smile and remember that even in these terribly tragic moments there is still some humor that can be found but yeah it is one of the most powerful you know know, i said this about the gwyneth paltrow getting off the green line bus thing like that is that is an image of 21st century filmmaking like this sequence this scene is such perfect filmmaking in in all of these kind of film theory or film appreciation classes or whatever subreddits everyone talks about oh this giant single take shot in in goodfellas or the soy cuba or this flashy thing that happens there's nothing flashy about this moment it is just like pure alchemy in terms of acting camera production design 
and editing and music. It's just like everything is working at, at a really high level. Nothing is calling attention to itself. And it just works so well. Mm-hmm. I would love to talk about, we mentioned a few other musical moments in this movie. And you said that Elliot Smith recorded a version of Hey Jude. Yeah. And then I had always assumed, having seen this movie a dozen times, that the version of Hey Jude that they use, other than the harpsichord version, is the Beatles. Nope. So tell me a little bit about this. So for the soundtrack, and this is from Far Out magazine, Anderson got the green light to use Paul Simon, Nico, John Lennon, the Rolling Stones, and Nick Drake. But getting the go-ahead from George Harrison to use Hey Jude was an impossible task due to the former Beatles cancer battle. Oh, because he was fi- he was like fighting cancer at this time. It looks that way. Yeah, because he died like a year yeah. after the movie came out. Quote, we had gone through a long process of trying to get permission for these Beatles songs. And in those days, they weren't doing it. Anderson explained to IndieWire in 2014. That changed. But at the time, we were trying to break the thing and get it to happen. The problem was that we had some pretty good ins. We'd used some John Lennon music in Rushmore and Yoko Ono. I always had a feeling that she'd been supportive of me, even though I don't know her. Paul McCartney had seen Tenenbaums, and he said yes, but George Harrison was sick and dying. Anderson added, you had to get everyone to sign off, and George was just not possible. No one was going to say, oh, before you die, could you please watch this movie and tell us whether we could use the music for it? So with that in mind, Anderson decided the next best thing would be to get Elliot Smith to take on the track. We know what happened there. The cover didn't end up sounding how the director or the singer had dreamt up in their heads. Uh, Then this is Anderson again. So then we got Elliot Smith. And then I thought I'd like to see if Elliot Smith could do this. He did a version, but he wasn't in a great mental or physical space at the time. And it was just not a successful recording session. It was kind of a mess. Adding, he did Hey Jude, but he wasn't happy with it. And it really didn't work. He wasn't comfortable with the whole situation, it seems. Then at the last minute, I got asked by Mark Mothersbaugh, can we do this? Mark and music supervisor... George Draculius and I, we went in and very quickly did this whole thing. We had good revisions and Mark just made it happen. And then it was fine. And Anderson still got his way and made sure that Hey Jude found its way onto the screen. However, it wasn't the original or Smith's version that appeared in the final cut. It instead was with Mothersbaugh's orchestra, Mutato Musica. So I love Mark Mothersbaugh. I, I think he's absolutely great. I love Devo. Hopefully... In the future, we'll get to talk to them. However, this is such a sound alike to me that I just assumed that it was the real thing. It's also another instance of life imitating art because Royal fakes his own cancer in this movie and they can't get Hey Jude because George Harrison is dying of cancer. Not that cancer is all that rare, but it's interesting all of these like real life parallels to the to the movie before the movie was written and also after. Yeah, I never really thought about it that way either. But uh, well, I'm also not saying that George Harrison died of cancer. Oh, George Harrison died of cancer the year this movie came out, mm. like about a about a month before the movie came out. Yeah, um, inc- incredibly sad, and also feels like very gauche, as as you said, right? Like you can't yeah. be like, uh, "Excuse me, sir." Before you die, I know you're doing could, some stuff, right? Could now. you clear that? And I think you know, we also just when it comes to getting Beatles songs before a certain time, I think in our that thing you do episode, we talked about how difficult Impossible. it was to get 
Beatles songs to soundtrack anything, just due to all the red tape at the time. The other musical moment that we mentioned a ton in this film is these days, the Nico song. Fun fact, it was written by Jackson Brown, who also played guitar on these days, and he forgot that he had given permission for the song to be used in the film. So he said this in an interview, quote, I forgot that I had licensed the song to them. And this is one of those things that comes to you in the mail and you don't know what they're talking about. and You simply give you their permission and that's it. And then you're sitting in the movie theater and there's great moment where Gwyneth Paltrow is coming down off the bus or something like that. And I'm thinking to myself, I used to play guitar just like that. <laughs> and then the voice comes on and it's Nico singing these days, which I wrote and played on. <laughs> Jax Brown rules. Yes. That's amazing. So, Bombs was a hit. It made $71 million off of a $21 million budget. Even then, its cultural growth was kind of slowed by the country's changing perspectives post-9-11. This came out in December of 2001. Mm. But its cultural implications were widely felt. In addition to some of the most memorable single shots of the last 25 years, Alec Baldwin used Gene Hackman's speech and movements as the titular royal as a basis for his own character of Jack Donaghy in the show 30 wow, Rock. I did not know that. <laughs> Me neither. That makes so much sense. So much, especially because Hackman was like an asshole. Yeah. And this movie came out just as Mitch Hurwitz was working on the pilot for Arrested Development. And Hurwitz basically gave up writing Arrested Development after watching The Royal Tenenbaums because he thought the narration and the movie's habit of following the different characters individually was too similar to his vision for the show. (laughs) And he didn't give up. He like persevered. But when they were pitching and when they were going out and doing press for Arrested Development, Jason Bateman kept describing it as the Royal Tenenbaums, but shot like cops. That is exactly what it is. (laughs) Right? Huge cultural ripples. Tenenbaums garnered just one Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay, Mm -hmm. and Anderson and Wilson lost that to screenwriter Julian Fellows for Mm. Gosford Park. Julian Fellows of Downton Abbey fame? I think so, because Gosford Park is like a Downton Abbey kind of deal. I have not seen Gosford Park, but I remember really wanting to see it because I had a huge crush on Ryan Phillippe at the time. Hell yeah. I remember he was in that. I also, you know, I mean, Academy Awards I have a lot of feelings about, but they're extremely good at getting it wrong about what movies will be culturally relevant Five, yeah, 10, they really can't years. see into the future at all. Yeah, cannot at all. And as we mentioned, Wes Anderson has gone on to create other incredible universes complete with their own musical moments. I'm thinking of Sue George's David Bowie covers in The Life Aquatic, all the way up to 16 Tons and Streets of Laredo and Asteroid City. Like other filmmaker auteurs like Martin Scorsese and Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan... Anderson gets a lot of flack for just kind of doing his Wes Anderson thing. He has become a TikTok meme. Yeah. They have lampooned him on Saturday Night Live, getting Alec Baldwin to do the the narration. And people say that he's becoming more and more of a caricature of himself with every passing film. I don't know whether I necessarily agree with that. And I have a lot of thoughts on the idea of an auteur and who gets mm. the privilege of being one. I mean, I'm very curious to know your thoughts, so just to pick your brain about it. I know sure. 
I feel that I empathize with that sense only because Wes Anderson movies are so aesthetic. Correct. Right. And I'm going to use maybe a bad comparison, but you remember like the early 2000s when all these like little indies that could made it big, like Napoleon Dynamite. Hated it. (laughs) But that was such an aesthetic movie. Yeah. Often imitated, never duplicated. Yes. But it's like basically like wearing fake vintage tees, like graphic tees at American Eagle and Abercrombie and Fitch and like in the early 2000s. Like there was such this like pervasive irony in this time and and this is also the time when the Royal Tenenbaums came out and Rushmore and so I think that like we live in a much more sincere less ironic time for now at least for now at least as far as pop culture goes and so like TikTok is where you go to lampoon it's where you go to be ironic about irony Yeah. (laughs) and so maybe in our current moment it just feels silly to like watch new Wes Anderson movies when you could just watch The Royal Tenenbaums or Rushmore or The Life Aquatic because we can feel nostalgic about irony and that that ironic time in the early 2000s but this um this is a question for the room. I don't really have an opinion, but I understand why people might not feel comfortable with this like kind of filmmaking replicated today. For sure. So there's like a lot at play, right? So the Wes Anderson aesthetic is definitely something that is getting more and more distilled with age, right? Everything is just getting more pastel. And I think that that might have to do with like this, the idea of having to outdo yourself every time, every time you make a new project, but also um, the idea that people keep calling you a genius, right? The more that someone calls you a genius, the less you have to like answer to whether your ideas are good. Mm-hmm. And so the like extremely famous example of this is like George Lucas and the Star Wars prequels, which has gotten mm-hmm. a bit of a reappraisal in the last five years. But when they came out, everyone was like, yes, George. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, George. And then the movies came out and we're like, fuck you, George. And so I think that all artists deep down really, really, really hate themselves. And that's why they make art. And the moment that you stop hating yourself and start believing that you are a genius is the moment that you stop having anything interesting to say. And so I think to an extent, Anderson has thought he's he was a genius for a while. So there's that. But also... Like, who gives a shit about, like, like the fact that he uses pastel colors in a certain aspect ratio? Like, who gives a shit? The thing that I think can be criticized is if he is still at 45 or however old he is now telling the same stories about Oh, he was at, born, he's like 55. Is he fucking really? Look, well, he was born in 1969. Yeah, so like, he's like in his early 50s. Yeah. So yeah, him in his early 50s still s- telling the same stories about, you know, adolescent 30-somethings not understanding how to deal with their parents, not loving them properly, which is, you know, not always what he's doing, but there's still some stuff in there. And I think, I do think that his movies are more varied than people give him credit for, but it becomes a little bit like Blink 182 in their mid to late forties singing songs about like going to the high school prom. More, uh, more like dicks, butts and poops. Dicks, butts and poops, right? 
yeah like mm, it's it was like a little bit more cute when you were 22 than it is when you're 45 <laughs> what's this age again what what is my age again but in general i have i have a lot of love in my heart for some of the things that he has done and and much like every filmmaker there are movies that hit more than they miss i think his best are and bombs and darjeeling limited which i i love i don't disagree also the auteur theory that now you're now you really got me going the auteur theory also presupposes that the director does everything on set which is if you watch like documentaries like room 237 which is about kubrick's the shining Mm -hmm. the like all these crazy shining conspiracy theorists assume that stanley kubrick did literally everything on set including so the costumes and hold the boom and did this Mm -hmm. and did that and like that's not what filmmaking is i think all art is a collaborative process but especially filmmaking takes hundreds of people all putting in their own points of view to their to the art that it is impossible to distill it down to just one person and when someone tries to do that like wes anderson might be doing later in his career that's also when things kind of go a little sour mm-hmm. got lots I, of feelings yeah. i'm i mean when you brought up the george lucas thing i was fully on board with that i mean that i think that's just the ideal comparison because i i too know the story of like he was just well, allowed to do whatever well, yes george whatever the fuck <laughs> on that note on that note fuck you george lucas <laughs> So whether or not you agree with the auteur theory and whether or not you think that Wes Anderson has just become a parody of himself in the last 20 years, it seems pretty clear that his pastel storybook warped with parental issues and malaise started right here on 111 Archer Avenue in the home of Royal Tenenbaum. Good wrap up. Thank you. Love it. Thanks for listening. Check us out everywhere on the internet. We're at the InSync Pod. Thank you for spending this time with us. Let's check ass. This is where we like close the storybook. Oh, yeah. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm Kyle. Can We Geek About is a new podcast from Gotham West. Each week, JJ and I will delve into the geekier side of pop culture from our favorites in science fiction and fantasy to new releases and even maybe rag on some absolute flops. We promise that even if you don't like what we have to say, you'll like how we say it. But anyway, can we geek about? Did you really need me here for this? I just needed a ride. (sighs) Can we geek about? So give us a listen, subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts.